Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. do you trust Canadian media? And do you worry about the issue of false balance, which could mean media deliberately not giving the proverbial other side of the story? Our feature guest, Andrew Coyne, has some thoughts on that. Do you just flat out lie through your teeth over and over and over again? And if you do, you don't deserve to be put up on a, on a media platform and given the credibility that goes with that as simply being a contender in the, in the search for truth. It's, it's just a matter of, you know, two different opinions. Welcome to Season 3 of The Long Way, a podcast of think tank Cardus. Check us out at cardus.ca or look for us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Talking about trusted media is a well, bit of a personal issue for me. I worked as a journalist for almost 17 years, most recently as a parliamentary correspondent at Sun Media. So when I see the most recent Edelman Trust barometer show that Canadian trust in traditional media is down to its lowest level in a decade... Yeah, it's a little worrying. By the way, that also raises the issue of hateful speech via the internet and social media, given how many people have turned away from traditional media. So coming up a little later, we'll look at that issue in a field report from Peter Stockland. But first, I want to turn to traditional media, fairness, balance, false balance. That's something our feature guest can help us sort out. Globe and Mail columnist and CBC at issue panelist, Andrew Coyne. Andrew Coyne, thank you so much for joining us on The Long Way. Pleasure to be here. You know, the issue of false balance uh, has been gaining a lot of traction in in recent years. It's not actually that new a term, but in any case, I think we should define the term first. And basically, as I understand it, false balance is when a journalist treats two things or two sides of an argument that aren't equal or aren't worthy of uh, similar consideration as though they are equal. Is that how you understand the term? Yeah, and as you say, it's a long-standing problem. Uh, I've read complaints uh, by economists, for example, about uh, how economics questions are treated in the public square going back uh, probably 100 years. Okay, so we are working kind of with a very common uh, understanding then. I know that, you know, false balance and, and being able to, you know, treat your subject fairly in media is extremely important, always has been and is important today, especially in, in our polarized times. How do you see false balance showing up in Canada? Well, uh, let me think. Uh, it, it can show up all the time, uh, in, in, particularly in issues where there are there is a body of expertise on a particular question. And oftentimes experts disagree, of course, but oftentimes there is a fair degree of consensus among expert opinion on the broad strokes of a question. The disagreements are probably around the margins. But somebody who is not expert, doesn't pretend to be expert, doesn't really care about expertise, comes along and says, well, I just disagree. I just think they're all wrong. I, I just think they're all either blind or they're in cahoots, or I just prefer not to believe it. 
Uh, and that person puts forward a, an alternative theory that has no you know, grounding in reality. Um, there's really not a lot of uh, sense in treating those as just simply, well, you know, he says X and she says Y. Uh, uh, if, if you treat those as being e equivalent in, in legitimacy and credibility, then you're doing a disservice to your audience. Um, so you're starting from a from an argument that, from from a premise a principle that says there's two sides to every story and that's often true, uh, but if you're not weighing at least to some extent the credibility of the of the contenders then you're not doing your job as a journalist. It's fine when they are broadly in the same tent. You don't have to do sort of micro estimations of who's more credible, but w when one side is plainly plainly just you know lunatic, and the other side it represents um, uh, a scientific consensus, then I think I think that becomes uh, an important consideration. So, can you give me an example then of where you would see this kind of false equivalence showing up, where there's, you know, some spokesperson is being uh, quoted or or given airtime, and r really shouldn't because they have nothing to contribute to the conversation. I can give you a two or three, I guess. If you, as I say, if you go back a few decades, I remember during the free trade debate. Now, I want to be preface this by saying there were credible people on both sides of the free trade debate. There were important uh, questions on, to be and arguments to be made on both sides, but there were also completely non-credible people on uh, certainly on the non-free trade side. People who really had not didn't have the first clue about how economies worked, etc. Who were given roughly comparable airtime with you know tenured professors of economics uh, on the on on questions about economics. Um, more recently, of course, I think uh, I think climate change has reached that stage where uh, there are to be sure there are uncertainties in that debate. But on the broad question of uh, is the climate warming and is it uh, is it man is it caused by you know man human activity. Uh, um, Again, there are non-cranks. I would. I'm one of the few who might admit this. I think there are non-cranks who have problems with the theory. But there's also a lot of cranks uh, on uh, on the quote-unquote skeptic side who aren't really skeptics. They've just decided they'd prefer not to believe this, and to treat them as uh, equally credible with, uh, you know, climate scientists. I think is a terrible mistake. And I guess the third and most recent is on the question of uh, Donald Trump and did he steal the election and questions like that. Uh, to put on Trump supporters, Trump acolytes, uh, on a question of, of basic fact like that, uh, and treat them as, it, it, as these, this is just an argument where there's two sides. Uh, now, for the most part, the media has not done it on that thing, perhaps because they've learned their lesson having dealt with Trump and his supporters for the last four years. I mean, one measure of credibility is, do you just flat out lie through your teeth over and over and over again? And if you do, you don't deserve to be put up on a on a media platform and given the credibility that goes with that as simply being a contender in the in the search for truth. It's, it's just a matter of you know two different opinions. You you've just you you've sacrificed your right to that kind of treatment, in my opinion. I think one of the one of the challenges in this. I mean, you've given three examples, um, and you talk about cranks and you talk about um, you know uh, some of. Trump supporters, and I, I can see where you're going with all of that. I think one of my concerns, one of my fears is when, 
you know, there there are specific examples. There are scientific areas, maybe places where there are, where there is consensus. How how dangerous how dangerous is it, and how much danger would you see in uh, journalists going too far in deciding this voice is credible, that voice is not credible? How do you, uh, you know, how do you be balanced about false balance? I guess is what I'm asking. And you're absolutely put your finger on it. It's a huge danger. So we live in a very perilous time in this respect because. Uh, you know, it, it, there used to be a, a broad sense of this idea that reasonable people can differ. And there were two components of that statement. One is you can differ. It's okay to have differences of opinion. It's okay. There's not just one side to, to every issue. That It's okay for people to disagree. But the other component of that was uh, you have to be reasonable. We're not just going to treat people who are plainly out of their minds or, or arguing in bad faith the same as reasoned, credible individuals. Both sides of that equation right now are in a lot of peril. Uh, on the one end, and we've been talking earlier in the discussion about uh, the degree to which the public square, public arguments, public debates have been kind of corroded and, 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 and infiltrated by all kinds of, of either bad faith actors or people who, by virtue of their access to social media now, who are cranks or worse, who are now able to kind of get their views out there in a much more forceful way. And that's a, that's a challenge that we've been discussing for the first part of this conversation. That's a challenge to try and preserve this idea that this is about reasonable people. But there's also a, a, lots of people out there uh, who would like to shut down all kinds of debates on questions in which there ought to be a credible uh, uh, alternatives and, 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 and debate and disputation. Um, particularly in the area of things like identity politics, for example, where uh, so many of these debates can be made to, to seem to turn on or, or argued to turn on whether you respect me as an individual, whether you recognize my right to exist, whether you recognize my existence. Uh, that's a very potent card to play, but it basically says nobody can disagree with me uh, on a whole range of, of issues uh, surrounding this topic. Uh, so. And, 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 and similarly on issues to do with climate change or whatever, you can extend that broad uh, um, uh, argument about uh, on which there is a fair degree of consensus or a high degree of consensus about is it happening and is it man-made into ruling out any discussion about how it should be, how it should be uh, 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 challenged or cha uh, uh, tackled, I should say, as, as, a, as a problem. Uh, it, it's too easy uh, to make too many, to, to declare too many topics to be settled. Uh, um, uh, so either because they have to do with identity politics or because they have to do with science, but science can be manipulated for political ends. So it's a really difficult balancing act to, on the one hand, preserve uh, openness to debate about things on which reasonable people ought to be able to differ without letting into the debate all kinds of cranks and, 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 and uh, people of bad faith. I wonder if there's, you know, a, maybe a, a way to think about this, or let me just put it this way. I, I read something from Emma Gilchrist in The Narwhal, um, media outlet that's devoted to, you know, environmental issues, nature, uh, those sorts of things, uh, a charity-based Canadian outlet. And Emma wrote, um, committing to portraying complexity 
doesn't mean he said, she said journalism, and it doesn't mean false balance. It does mean resisting the urge to tie stories and people up in a bow. And she adds that taking a less reactive posture and asking better questions helps us get to better journalism that avoids the danger of just giving airtime to cranks, as you put it, um, that really don't contribute much to what we're trying to do. Yeah. I, and I, I think there's a, a great deal of truth in what, that, what she says there. I, I do think to avoid false balances, it does call upon us to make uh, judgments. And I find more and more topics and issues these days revolve around this question of judgment. Um, we're always looking for bright line rules. Uh, and I'm, I'm one of those. I always like to, to, to if I can, to, to, to base things around rules. But a lot of, uh, maybe just as I get older, I, get, I start to realize more, a lot of problems, there isn't a bright, you know, bright line rule. You kind of have to use your judgment, and this may be one of them, where um, w- w- to avoid just going he said, she said, presenting quote-unquote two sides, when there may be nine sides for one thing, uh, or in which the sides are not equally credible, you do have to exercise some judgment, uh, but you also have to exercise the judgment that says, am I letting my own agenda run away with me here? Am I being too certain of my own beliefs when I'm weighing who's credible and who's not? Uh, uh, and and am, I, am I not having enough humility about what I know or what indeed is known? Uh, so, it, 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 and again, that just comes back to judgment. We have to, be, we have, to have the habit of mind as a journalist or as anybody else in society, you have to have that habit of mind that, that is uh, uh, not so um, uh, uh, relativistic as to say nothing is true or, or everything is relative, but not so absolutist as to say whatever I think is true and, and I don't need to, to, to canvas the possibility that I might be, that I might be wrong. Uh, so, so that's, I think, the challenge is, is if you get away from the simple rule of present both sides, then you do plunge into this complex world where you have to exercise some judgment so that you don't just become, you don't just retreat to the other simplicity of there's only one side. Are we getting better at doing that in Canada in our journalism? Do you think? Have you seen sort of an an evolution in that respect? Uh, I think so. I, again, I think the Trump phenomenon has really challenged people in in this country as well as in the United States. Uh, and this is not quite the same topic, but I think related. You know, for a long time, it was an absolute taboo in journalism to say that so and so lied. Um, and with good reason, uh, you know, it's very hard oftentimes to tell whether somebody is lying or just simply mistaken. And unless you're certain, uh, you shouldn't be casting aspersions uh, uh, so quickly that you're doing a disservice to your reader if you do that. But if you apply that rule too simplistically to somebody who is clearly and obviously and verifiably lying and who has earned that reputation uh, through repeated exposures, um, then again, you're not going to be uh, uh, helping your reader. So we had to kind of cross that Rubicon, if you will, of, of, of calling a liar a liar. Um, so we've had to move off, I think, of, on that and some other topics, off of the, uh, the easy uh, um, uh, uh, two sides approach to it. Uh, I do worry that we've moved a little too far in the other direction of declaring debates to be closed that aren't necessarily closed to, to reasonable and credible uh, um, disputation. 
and, and being a little too um, agenda driven. I think I think that's the that's the other danger that I think perhaps we've been drawn towards in our zeal, perhaps to try to correct for that first danger. I've also noticed that there is, I've noticed, it's not some big uh, observation, millions have noticed this, I'm sure, uh, that in the in the way that media have evolved in Canada, and there's, you know, job losses and reorganization and closures and openings and whatnot, uh, there has been a, a broadening of the amount of media voices, but we've also ended up with something that really ends up being this kind of cross between activism on the one hand and, I guess, traditional news media on the other. Uh, I'm talking about things like Rebel News or Press Progress, you know, uh, on the other side. And and that's not necessarily an evolution that I think is is all that positive. I agree. And I, I, I may, uh, I think I'm obliged to say, I, I'm not sure there's a... Uh... There might be a false balance in equating uh, Rebel and, and Press Progress as well. I think Rebel has crossed many lines beyond just not being objective journalism. It is, uh, it, it, I just think a lot of its content is really odious. Whereas Press Progress, I just, I'll disagree with a lot of it, but I don't think that they're, um, you know, sort of polluting the, the discourse in the country. Uh, but that being said, uh, you're absolutely right that, that um, uh, we live in a much more complex world journalistically than we did in the past. Um, and in some respects, that's a good thing. People have access to the public square now who might have been kind of ruled out in the past. They might not have been able to get through the filters that the gatekeepers established. But those filters and that gaping, gatekeeping function with all of its potential pitfalls, I, I think is, is, is a world that, that, that we'd like to get back in some respects at least. Uh, for, the, for establishing that idea, because that's what the gatekeepers did, was establish that, that idea and, and regulate that idea of reasonable people can differing. It wasn't the state doing it, it was the people who owned the printing presses. And as, you know, as I say, that, that sounds elitist, but if you don't have somebody doing the filtering, if you don't have somebody whose reputation is on the line, who has to continue to, to, to maintain their own credibility, uh, if anybody can just put broadcast to millions anything they like at any moment without any thought, without any verification, without any concern for its, uh, its toxic effects, then you get what we have now. Uh, you, you, that, that is the world that social media has created. And we've, been, I think, become increasingly aware of where that leads, uh, the, the, the degree to which you can create um, uh, essentially, essentially a mass delusion, as we've seen in the states over the question of, of Trump's election. Uh, uh, so, um, it, 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 the, the, the traditional media have lost that role, partly because of the rise of social media, partly because the media, the traditional media, have been going through uh, a, a terrible um, reckoning as their business model has collapsed in the face of Facebook and Google, etc. Uh, I don't blame Facebook and Google for having a better mousetrap, if you will, in terms of the, their, their ability to, to sell ads to advertisers. But I think it has forced uh, the, the rest of us in, in, the, in the traditional media to figure out, okay, if, if advertising isn't going to finance us, what will? And the answer, I think, is we're going to have to get more of it from the reader. And that actually can ultimately lead, I think, to a very good world for traditional media. I think. Um, uh, where we're when we're selling content to readers rather than readers, you know, audiences to advertisers, I think we're likely to get a better product. But in the meantime, it's a it's a tough go. But uh, 
so that getting the traditional media back on on its footing, I think, will help to try to uh, restore some kind of, uh, of, of of credible voices amongst amongst this cacophony of hundreds and thousands of other um, quote unquote media sources. But the other important aspect is that the social media platforms uh, are, I think, now realizing or being made to realize that the the model that they did in their early years of anything goes uh, is simply not sustainable. It, 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 that it, 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 given the, the, the realities of frail human beings and that lots of people will use that freedom for the absolute worst possible uses, it doesn't mean for one second, in my opinion, that you want the state regulating it uh, beyond the very narrow range of things that the state now regulates, like incitement to violence. Uh, but there's a kind of a penumbra of other material that I've seen described as being quote unquote lawful but awful that uh, you don't want the state censoring or repressing, but you don't want, if you're a serious person and a, and a person who cares about his community, you don't want to be giving it amplification. You don't want to be giving it a platform. You have a, you have a, a social responsibility and ultimately you hope you can align that social responsibility with your commercial imperative uh, to, not to give it a platform if it's just going to be destructive of, of, of society and of social norms. I will say, if you if you go back 100 or 200 years, newspapers were a lot less responsible than they became in more recent times. Uh, and newspapers, you know, would peddle the most extraordinary. I mean, some people still say they do, but I mean, they should look back at papers 100 or 200 years ago in terms of the falsehoods uh, that would be would be peddled by newspapers. But somewhere along the way, you know, it's kind of like the the bootleggers eventually going legit and becoming respectable uh, businesses. Somewhere along the way. Newspapers uh, discovered it was it was in their own business interest to be at least somewhat more credible as sources of news and opinion, and and, and maybe that's the same transition that the social media platforms are now undergoing. I, I, I hope my own preference, and I know this is a big subject of debate right now, is to, to what extent should the state regulate it. My own preference is I would really rather leave as much of it as I can to the social media platforms themselves and try and encourage them as a society, and maybe there's incentives that can be, uh, 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 can be added to it, to, to do the job themselves uh, rather than getting the government involved in it. Andrew, we'll, we'll have to end it there, but you've just left so many strings that, uh, that I could pull if we had like another 40 or 80 minutes to, uh, to go through it. But we will end it there, and uh, maybe we'll re-explore the topic in future. Thank you so much for, for joining me on, uh, on The Long Way. My pleasure. It really is one of the biggest questions of our time, I think. All right. Andrew Coyne does make a fair point, I'd say, about rebel news crossing lines that no one should cross. And as I say, there's a lot more to explore on this topic. Now, related to all this is the issue of toxic speech online, especially in social media. That's what field reporter and longtime journalist Peter Stockland looks into for us. In January of this year, the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression released a report detailing its six-step harm reduction program to deal with what it calls the deluge of hate speech and other harms flooding the Internet. The report is one of numerous efforts across North America to deal with what some see as problematic speech on social media, and which others see as simply an outcome of free speech. 
The Commission itself is a creature of the Public Policy Forum, a non-governmental think tank proud of its ability to get the government's ear on such things as special tax credits for journalists, the designation of media companies as charitable entities, and the tax-supported local journalism initiative. The Commission's report was partly funded by the government. Public Policy Forum President and CEO Edward Greenspan, a former editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail, says the Commission's nine-month study tells us what we should do about Internet hate and other harms while protecting free speech. Among its shoulds, it recommends federal legislation obliging Internet platforms to act responsibly, appointment of a new federal responsibility regulator, something called a world-leading transparency council, and a government-backed e-disputes body to settle complaints against social media platforms. Among critics of the report is Peter Menzies, a former publisher with the Calgary Herald newspaper and a 10-year veteran as a commissioner with the CRTC, Canada's broadcast regulator. Menzies acknowledges there's a lot of dark matter on the web, but based on his CRTC experience, he's scathing about government going beyond existing law to control social media. It betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of what the foundation of democracy is. The foundation of democracy isn't journalism and it's not government. It, it's free speech and free expression and freedom of conscience. And those are all human rights. The, the very idea that people could so casually, in the defense of democracy, decide that the only way democracy can survive would be through controlling and subjugating these human rights. <laughs> and there's something very backward with that, and I find it quite troubling. And I mean, that's not to say that a lot of the things that occur on social media aren't reprehensible. I used to hear a lot of things in coffee shops that were reprehensible too. Um, and the speed with which things can spread on social media is, you know, I think a matter of concern. But the idea that Going forward, the only way to protect democracy is for people to speak with permission of the state is stunning. Menzies argues as well that abundant laws already exist to regulate and control what the report refers to as other harms. There's all kinds of civil law. There have been controls on speech for many years in terms of prohibitions of civil and criminal law. There is a hate speech, there's an existing hate speech law in Canada, which was very contentious at the time, but set the bar rightfully very high. In other words, you, you may express an opinion about anything, but you may not call for harm to be done to others. You cannot say people rise up and hit Presbyterians with sticks or anything like that. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You can't incite riots and that sort of stuff. There's, so there's all of those still apply to social media. The idea that social media is, is unregulated by the law or by civil society and people's behavior and their responses to it is, is without foundation. They, I mean, these things are new, but the old laws still apply to them. He expresses bafflement that members of his old profession, journalism, don't seem to understand the risk involved in inviting government into social media feeds. The self-styled defenders of democracy, the media, don't seem to catch that one at all. I mean, a few do, but most don't. For The Long Way, 
I'm Peter Stockland. Well, I don't know about you, but there's a lot to digest in what Peter Menzies, Peter Stockland, and Andrew Coyne have told us. What do you think about Canadian media, the related free speech issues? How do we continue to enjoy free speech without the toxic, polarized climate that most recognize as unhealthy and unhelpful? I'd love to hear from you. Media at cardus.ca. Cardus is C-A-R-D-U-S. Now, well, we've, we've gone way over time. These are supposed to be short episodes, but I guess you could say we've got some pretty long perspectives on the issues at hand. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you are listening to The Long Way. For the whole crew at Cardus, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Thanks for listening. 